Today's episode is brought to you by Amazon Collectibles. Did you know that Amazon sells collectibles, memorabilia, and fine art? They do. Amazon has over 2 million listings for collectibles and memorabilia for non-collectors, gifters, and serious collectors and hobbyists looking to build their collection and find unique slash rare collectibles. The store focuses on PSA and CGC grading, an authenticated selection of comic books, photos, prints, posters, and more across various franchise shows and movies. They really do have a lot of cool stuff. You get free shipping on select items. Uh, just go to Amazon.com Nerdist. And uh, you might want to check out, for example, uh, the first comic featuring Scott Lang as Ant-Man. That's on there. Uh, you just search for Ant-Man, Scott Lang, but go to Amazon.com Nerdist and then poke around and uh, see what you can find out. Basically, anytime you use Amazon, do it through Amazon.com slash Nerdist, and it helps out uh, all of uh, the podcasts you love. Thanks to Amazon, not just for sponsoring the show, but for allowing me to not have to leave my house to go shopping. Greetings, Adventure Coteers. It's me, Work Juice Player Hal Lublin. You may have heard rumors of the thrilling Adventure Hours doing a holiday show at the Theater at the Ace Hotel in L.A. on December 17th. Those rumors are true. And what you may not have heard is that that December 17th show is our final show before going on an indefinite hiatus. Yep, that December 17th show at the Ace will be the last new Beyond Belief, the last new Sparks Nevada, the last of everything for a very long time. Now look, we all love doing the show, but the cast and everyone else has got deservedly busy over the past couple years. And while Acker and Blacker have enjoyed stretching the boundaries of what a thrilling adventure hour can be since ending the monthly show in 2015, it's time for a good long break. So please, join us on December 17th at the Theater at the Ace Hotel for a farewell appearance. The Ace is a beautiful, big theater, and we want to fill it with enthusiastic adventure coteers, the fans who mean so much to us. You can find the link for tickets on all of our social media, that's at ThrillingADV on Twitter, on Facebook, and at workjuice.tumblr.com, or by searching the Ace Hotel calendar. And now, please enjoy this all-new episode. Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome to the Writers Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 400 writers on the show, so go back and check the archives. I'm sure you'll find more creators and more shows that you're interested in. I'm a writer myself, having written with my partner Ben Acker for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, FX's Cassius and Clay, among others. We've also written comics from Marvel, Image, Dynamite, and more. We created a show called The Thrilling Adventure Hour. Maybe you'd like it. Go to thrillingadventurehour.com for more info. Let me know who you want to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so, uh, and follow me on Tumblr at writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes. It always makes me feel good about myself. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! All right. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Uh, we've got Eric Heisserer. Uh, Eric has the... Upcoming, I don't know when this is coming out. Friday. Arrival is, yeah. well, I don't know when this podcast oh, is yeah. coming out. Uh, but Arrival uh, is out in theaters or is coming out in theaters. One or the other. Uh, yes, uh, as well as Lights Out just came out uh, like on demand, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, let's talk about Arrival for a minute. I'm curious to hear about how this 
because this is a wholly original story. It's based on a short story, it's right? Based on a short story. Um, but I think there had to be a lot of work done using that as a jumping-off point. Sure. I mean, it's not like a million-page Philip Roth novel. Right. I look over at where John Romano would be sitting. <laughs> um, I it it started with Ted Chiang. I was a f- have been a fervent fan of his for many years, and uh, in particular, Story of Your Life. I was really keen on adapting that. I carried around a dog-eared copy of that collection for a long time. And as you do, you get a modicum of success in this business. You do the bottled water tour where you meet with all the producers. And the inevitable question in that, the, you know, the business Tinder dating version is, you know, is there source material out there that you're excited about? Uh, and I would talk about Ted's stories. I would talk about Story of Your Life in particular and said, this thing just made me feel all the feels. And I have such a connection with it. And they would be like, oh, they'd sit forward. And they're like, fantastic, tell us, tell us more. And I'd say, well, there's a female lead. It's a non-franchise sci-fi and uh, <laughs> deals with linguistic relativity. And they would be like, give me the water rack. Get out of the office. You know, this, just, is, this is really what I was curious about. Like, yeah. How does this story pitch? Because it, it's a not good well. story. <laughs> it's a great story. Yeah. And that's, that is what a pitch ought to be, right? Is the telling of the story that you're excited to tell. Yeah. But, but it has these aspects. It has have these aspects. And either you love it or you're completely disengaged. Um, I did my best to stay out of the way of the the pitch of the story and just get them to read it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, how did that work? Not not really well. No, <laughs> no, I found out. You know, someone would read coverage of half the story, or you know, something strange like yeah. that. Um, but so much of this is about finding the right people. Mm-hmm. It is about re- the relationships. And you can go through a hundred different meetings of people completely disengaged, and then you find somebody who has the same passion, the same spark for it as you do. And that is what happened when I was almost basically on my way out of the door at 21 Laps with uh, Dan Cohen and Dan Levine. And I, and I said, this is the story. Hmm. And they said, all right, we'll actually read it. And they did. <laughs> and they totally loved it. And then we were like the three musketeers, and we are like, let's, let's go and pitch this around town. Interesting. So then how did that pitch go? How, how was that pitch different than you just trying to bring it to producers? Well, their first question was, how is this a movie? Mm-hmm. And it's a solid question, because there's a lot that had to be um, reconceptualized. Yeah. But we got through that. We did that heavy lifting up front. And um, I do my little visual note cards when I pitch. You know, I print them out and I find any sort of inspirational images. It's kind of like a mood board. Mm-hmm. But I also dreamcast it where I just say, you know, here's. And I remember back then, 2011, uh, the the card for Louise Banks was Amy Adams. So <laughs> really? it was like super wish fulfillment. We actually <laughs> got awesome. her like five years later. So, um, but we went around, went around town, and because there's a there's a circular narrative to the film. Um, you know, I did some presentation work by uh, arranging the, the cards of the story in a circle. So the last one I, I laid up on top of the first. Uh, and oh, every, smart. every studio said no. <laughs> the, did you, I'm curious. I'll, let me back up for a second. Sure. Um, I'm going to go a little bit in reverse order here. There's a circular. Sure, here we go. Let's, let's lean into it. Um, did you feel good about those pitches and doing it? Uh I felt great being able to share the story, mm-hmm. and I couldn't help but get emotionally invested every time I talked about it, because that's the way that Ted's work made me feel. Mm-hmm. And I was just there kind of like a courier, really, to like deliver the stuff that I felt from that story to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And uh, I could say that nobody disliked it. 
the studios were all just very clear in that. What was the the reason for passing? Oh, it was execution dependent. And I'm like, you know, really? Yeah. yeah. Like everything. <laughs> exactly. It is. Or is that code for, we don't think you can write this, Eric. You know? Like I sometimes, wonder. Sometimes that could be it. Um, and then just going back again, um, so when, when you brought the producers on board um, and you guys had this shared vision, right? how did you start to make it into a movie? I mean, you had to figure out what the movie of it was before you yeah. could go pitch it to studios. We did. We had to work uh, on that uh, fairly hard. So I what had did that look like? What, what was your process like? Well, I, to get into some of the details of the story, mm-hmm. uh, compare and contrast here, um, uh, Ted's piece is nonlinear, um, and half of the story in little chapter uh, segments. It's broken, but it's really, it pops back and forth between kind of a present day and then another set of uh, little short stories or little chapterettes that are basically done in second person addressing the reader as if it were uh, Louise's daughter. And the alien visitation there is the sudden uh, arrival of some technology, like 118 intergalactic TV screens, really. And we have this amazing Skype call with heptapods from light years away (laughs) And it goes on for, you know, between six months and a year. And and then they all disappear, and then that's that. And it's a very great literary experience with no conflict. <laughs> and I discovered, yeah, you need that for the film. You need some, some tension and some uh, drama. So what was it about the story that was interesting to you? What did you think would make this a movie? I was all about the emotional connection I had to it. Um, it was more that magic trick that great sci-fi authors pull, which is they start out with very heady concepts and introduce you to things like Fermat's Principle, at least time, Snell's Law, Sapir-Whorf Hypothesis, all these things, and then punch in the heart. And you're just like, I didn't, oh, why am I crying? I can't believe this. And so um, I was so hungry for a film that appealed to both the head and the heart. And, um, and I didn't think about how ridiculously hard it was going to turn this into a cinematic experience until I was suddenly forced with those questions. But the the giant change that I had to make was it's not a Skype call. They show up at our front door Mm -hmm. and it's an actual face-to-face encounter. Um, And it's not 118, it's 12. It's a little more manageable. And then everything sort of uh, emanated from that decision. You know, we had then our geopolitical panic and we had our our escalation of military and public awareness of like the longer the public had no idea what what the answer was for why they were here, the more restless everybody grew. You know, and every time I thought, gosh, I'm getting too tropey with this. It's, it's turning into like some sort of like, and then I'd see something on the news and I'm like, nope, no, that's humanity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're pretty terrible. Oh, no. Uh, but, uh, but I, you know, I, I laid that part out and it gave me the, the, you know, sort of the ticking clocks that we needed for it. And, and that was the, that was the major change to the, to the, mm-hmm. to the story. That makes sense. So that's sort of what you're walking into the studios with. Yeah. And then you say everybody passed. They did. So how, how do we get to see this movie? Yeah, because uh, uh, I was a stubborn jerk. I was really, I was really kind of uh, stupid on one level because uh, afterward I said, I can't get it out of my heart. I've got to write this. I'm going to write it on spec. Really? And the producers were like, yes. And my agents were like, No. Come on. And they, they had a very clear case of like, Eric, everyone's already said no. Mm-hmm. You're writing this for nobody. This is a waste of time. That's interesting. 
So and and you wrote it because you had to write it, which I, I think is a I great to lesson to writers coming up. Sure, write the thing you have to write. Yes, absolutely. Um, did you have expectations of it? No, and I think that was freeing. Mm-hmm. You know, it allowed me just to focus on the story I wanted to tell. Um, there was nobody else in the room except for me and these two producers, the two Dans, that uh, managed to, to keep all of us on point. And anytime something slipped t- toward a sort of a studio esque hmm. like uh, direction, we pulled back and said, Wait, "I don't think this is right for the film. You know, or right for the characters." So that was phenomenal. And then I was, you know, trying to get the bills paid and keep the lights on with other with other jobs right. in the meantime. So I would come back to it whenever I could. It was my respite after doing assignment. You know, they like look the the writer quite often, especially if you're being hired on for a studio assignment, you're given a hard hat. And a list of directions, and they already know what they want, and it's about you just sort of executing that. Hmm. And I crave being the architect; like I wanted to come in here and help build things from the ground up, so that I know, you know, how they, that they're sound. I don't want to have to like spackle over something that I know doesn't work just to make it look good. Uh, but quite often, that's the best you, job you can get for a while. And uh, and I would go back to uh, story of your life, and that spec after getting a, you know a job on a, a picture that my agents were like this is a go deal and of course it never it never happened you know right but this is and we've talked about this on the podcast before but this is the life of a feature writer it is you write these things and they never get made no um the crazy thing is this script that nobody wanted did get made it is um, it's a unicorn so when you were writing this uh, on spec how how long did that take? How many years did this take between projects and then how many rewrites did you do? Were you working with the producers the whole time? I I was. Mm-hmm. I was. I mean, to get the rights to the story, it was a little different than pitching it out. You can get a shopping agreement when you mm-hmm. just take a pitch out, and so it's more like a hold my place routine. There was no real contract uh, or you know large contract involved in that. But then when we were asking for a full year... Um, that's when Ted, the author, said, uh, I'm not giving this up until I hear the pitch first. And, you know, I pitched to 100 different studio execs, some are really mortifying pitches. Uh, you know, quite often I found myself pitching to Easter Island, as I call it, where they're just like World Series of Poker. They don't uh-huh. give me any reaction at all. But pitching to a speakerphone, to the man I idolize, you know, saying, you know, basically, so I'm going I'm to take your child, I'm going to drive off with them for a little while, and they're going to come back, and they may new, new, they may have some new words. <laughs> um, well, so what was his attitude? I mean, writers sort of authors go both ways on that. Where sure, there's the go ahead and take it. Let's see what happens. Or no, that's my baby. He was he was uh, reluctant, uh-huh. but he was like cautiously optimistic at the end of it, and he was like, let's let's try this out. And I think part of the reason was astonishing to me. No one had like legitimately approached him for any of his stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it sounds like they're unfilmable. Well, uh, <laughs> yes, there is that. There is that. But, but I would imagine too that he could hear in you your passion for the project and and how much you wanted this to happen. I hope so. I hope that's what helped convince him. And I kept him in the loop through the process. You know, I didn't give him every draft because that would have scared him. But yeah, I did. Uh, you know, I constantly called on him. He was my bullshit police. Uh-huh. And he was the first to tell me if the science was off in some hmm. places or, um, you know, if there's another misrepresentation. We diverged in our messages. I don't know if this is ever really personal beliefs or not, but there's uh, a message in his story 
at the core that's really about embracing the inevitable, sort of a deterministic kind of future. And I was all about choice and free will. And he's like, good luck with that. <laughs> but, Interesting. Uh, but, uh, you know, but that's that was the, the, the divergence paths for us. Were there, uh, and we can talk, uh, assuming people have seen the movie, because this will come out after its release, but sure. were there, in those various script stages, wrong roads that you went down? Yeah. Oh, of course. There was a lot of R&D. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is the kind of script that I think required that amount of work. I had to go through, you know, um, quite a few drafts of just exploration and mapping out all these possibilities so that I know where the dead ends are. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, what kept me on board through, from start to finish as the only writer that touched this. Um, and even sort of to, to an extent why I got the exact producer title as well, because I had all of this mapped out and they could ask me at the drop of a hat, like, what if we do this? And I say, okay, draft 13, I tried that and here's what <laughs> happened. Wow. Um, how did you know when things weren't working? Can you give an example? Can you remember any of those wrong paths? Um, it was, well, certainly in the, the, the content or the scenes between Louise and her daughter, mm-hmm. um, if, if any of that, um, violated, uh, you know, her decisions or her choices in the rest of the story, uh, or if it gave away too much or, or oddly enough, if it gave away too little, like if it just wound up being a lovely emotional scene that didn't provide an engine for everything else, we got down to where we could have plot scenes or character scenes and those didn't survive. They had to be both. Hmm. That's really interesting to hear you saying it doesn't occur to me now. It's, it's, they're done so seamlessly you don't. The exposition isn't telegraphed, and it, they aren't just emotional scenes. Right. And I think that's why the movie is so satisfying at yeah. the end. Well, what I want to get to there, I'm going to. This is jumping ahead yeah. now, but um, one of the lovely gifts of this movie is Denis, and what Denis was able to do in post is easily just like slide out little pieces of what would other be otherwise be exposition mm-hmm. or extra lines that the performance no longer needed the way it was cut together. Um, he found, I just, he was like eliminating brush strokes on a painting to get down to the most elegant version. Mm-hmm. And he did that so well um, and made it such a sort of aerodynamic piece uh, mm-hmm. by the end of it. You know, I think the first cut was two and a half hours plus something like that. And he just sort of like, you know, carved all that out and, and left stuff that like, you know, there was even just a couple of lines of dialogue. There's a scene with um, Louise introducing her daughter to a horse in a stable. And there's lines of like, see, they're just like us or, you know, mm-hmm. you, you don't reason to be scared of them. And that, that's all kind of really on the nose about her experience with, that, with the aliens. Right. But it was there as a sense of tone. And because she said those lines in the scene, um, he could pull them out and just focus on the, the sort of the impressionistic feel of them and we understood it that's an interesting thing though uh and, and it's something i think about that like you get to do that with a finished film yeah right but it's not something you can build into a script is it no no you do need some of the subtext fused into dialogue knowing that that kind of thing is probably on the plastic mm-hmm. but because it's there and it's said it it changes the the tenor of the scene so that um, removing it doesn't remove 
its existence. That's a weird thing of saying it, but it's like, you know, you can tell <laughs> yeah. that there's something else in the scene that just makes it loaded, but you don't have the line anymore. In well, the, the subtext version. remains. The subtext remains, yes, um, absolutely. And, and that can, as you say, it can serve a couple of purposes as it does in this film, which is really interesting. Um, just to sort of, sort of wrap this up, so was it, it must have been years on this script then, yeah. on the actual scripting. It was. I would go back to it even when we had nothing officially to do on it. You know, we were waiting on a director. I would mm. just go back and whittle away at it and would pester the producers. Okay, I did another draft. Like, yeah, where? What? No, we don't. <laughs> all right, fine. I'll take a look at it. Um, and I gave myself a lot of work considering I had to mainly insert some graphics into it every time I made the PDF. <laughs> that was a pain. Sure. But, uh, but yeah, I, would, I kept coming back to it. And, and then Denis came on board. Yeah, so how did how did that even start to happen? This is ostensibly a film, a project that is dead. Yes. Nobody's interested. So the producers went to directors? Well, we had independent financiers that, that got on oh. board after all the studios passed on the script. So they passed twice. They passed on the pitch, mm. and all the major studios passed on the script. With good reason. Oh, wow, so it went around again. It went around again when we had the spec out. Nobody and still, it. except for the uh, these uh, financiers... Or the and the little mini majors, the you know the there was a there were a handful of people in that I call them like the the featherweight le- level <laughs> of like where everyone's like hey I'll give you twenty bucks for it I'll give you twenty two you know right. it was that kind of thing, uh, but they were really passionate about it and they really loved mm-hmm. it for what it was, and weren't in them in them you know in the position of trying to make it something that it wasn't so we found a home with um, Film Nation and Lava Bear that sort of Voltron together to, mm-hmm. to try and make a make the film but at that point then we were still in need of a director and it, nothing had happened in that time and then Denis who had read the short story years ago and had said I, I deeply love this that's when you know you really connect if he says I deeply love that's what you're waiting to hear <laughs> uh, he's, he's he followed it up with I don't know how this is a movie and we finally got a chance to read it after Prisoners and and said yes yes hmm. I like this a lot let me meet with the writer he so he wasn't on, he wasn't on board he actually it's a very slow courtship with him or at least really? in my experience where uh, every other director meeting I've had where they're thinking about coming on you sit down it's half an hour and and they're like well all right thanks I got it from here and, right. and that's it they're know? sort of already in by the time they're, they're yeah they're already the, yeah and it's just sort of a perfunctory meeting where I, they shake the hand of the writer and then you know bid farewell and. Yeah. So what was he looking for, do you think, in that first conversation? It I didn't know, and it was a long coffee meeting, mm-hmm. and then at the end of it, he's like, I love this. This is very nice, Eric. Let's do this next week. And I said, what? <laughs> Are we... I'm sorry. Are we don't... Okay, sure. You know, and my producers, uh, you know, all breathlessly called me afterward. Is he on? I'm like... We're having coffee next week. Like he's what? It's a cliffhanger meeting. Yeah, it's a total cliffhanger meeting. And he did it again and again That's so and funny. again. And after the sixth or seventh one, somewhere around there, um, he's you know he and I bid farewell again. Gave me a hug. He's the sweetest man in person. Which if you've just seen his movies, especially at that point, I was like, hey, this guy's going to be intense as hell. Yeah. Uh, but um, I found out he was on board officially, and he called me afterward, and he says, "All right, Eric, now we are married." And now I understood. Like, it clicked for me. Yeah. That's, that was a whole, like, long courtship to make yeah. sure that if he's going to spend his time and energy on this, that that we had a good rapport and he could rely on me for a lot of things that I never expected, you know, to be called for. What were you guys talking about in those coffee meetings? Uh, religion, politics, philosophy, mm-hmm. science, base theorem applied to global population. 
that kind of thing. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. Um, so once he came on board, now it seems like this is a movie that this can be made. This is a movie that can be made. Uh, were there hurdles thereafter, or was it fairly smooth sailing? It was... It was luxurious sailing. Really? really, his first choice was Amy Adams, and I'm like, I look at this car. This is the car. This one. Um, and they had a lovely dinner together, and she came on board right away. And it was it was off to the races at that point. And then we had we had our production, we had our budget, we had everything kind of set up to go. And our financiers then took that whole package to Cannes to see if we could get a little bit more money there. And wound up uh, selling it to the same same studios that passed on the spec, because you know we had a. Look, right. It's like you know if you have a spec for Interstellar or Gravity or The Martian even, and no filmmaker on board, it's really hard for a studio to think, oh, we'll risk it for, you know, for this amount of money. But when you show up with someone akin to Nolan or Quaron, you know that that sort of thing, then it changes the. Game. Oh, absolutely. They can see what that movie is, or yeah. they can at least see people going to see that movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, were you, you were on set for the shoot? Yes. Um, were you writing on set? Were you rewriting? Were things changing? Uh, I was writing a lot of additional content, mm-hmm. you know, the dialogue for the anchor, anchor people that were in the background. Or, oh, interesting. Um, I never even was, think about that. Yeah, all of that. That was, you know, there's a lot of new stuff, a uh, handful of, uh, extra lines and sometimes it was a case of you're there on set with you know two or three very talented um oscar nominated actors and realizing on hour five that amy adams was having all the dialogue and one or two others were were in full hazmat suits wondering (laughs) what is going on with the day and i would rush over and say why don't we have a line for this guy here you know because he's here all day long. Let's like let's put him to work. A little That's bit. funny. <laughs> That's great, though. Yeah, uh, and that feels like that is that is earning the executive producer stuff. That's sort <laughs> a of little managerial bit, a little uh, work as well. Yeah, but there was a calmness around set, and that that really started from Denis and just emanated, mm-hmm. especially with Bradford. Bradford is also this really also. First of all, he was the sharp dressed man. He was the most fashionable guy on the entire set. He put us all to shame. Uh, he's kind of like a MacGyver of fashion. I don't know how Bradford Young does that, but he puts it together. But but he was also just really chill. And then, you know, we would do take it after, you know, we two or three or even four takes. And then he would be like, okay, okay, okay. And then Amy would be like, no, no, we're going again. He's like, I don't understand. No, we're going again. And then we'd do like take five. And he's like, I deeply love it. She's like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, I'm curious about tone is so important in this movie. Yeah. How are you... And, and I assume the tone that is in the movie is what you were trying to get across in the script. Yeah. How are you getting that across in the script? Uh, you know, more often than not, it was in the description. It was in the narrative. It was in the non-dialogue stuff. Mm-hmm. I had to find the right metaphor or simile or just, you know, the occasional adverb to set up um, a feeling going into a scene and and let that sort of paint the picture for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had to make sure that later on nobody took me literally because I've done that before and I've seen like a production designer or, you know, a first AD or somebody like being 
a little obsessed with. I, there was a description to try and set a really ominous tone. I don't think this was an arrival. I think it was in another script where I mm-hmm. said that the clouds are the color of fresh bruises. And they came back and they're like, it's a sunny day. We can't do this. I don't understand. I'm like, okay, it's all right now. We're actually making the film. So you don't need to worry about, we'll find a way to do this. It's not, the, it's not important now. Oh my God. <laughs> um, <clears throat> what is your, and this is some, you know, deep sort of nuts and bolts stuff, but what is your take on stage direction and the prose part of screenplays? How uh, do you tend to write that stuff? Early on, I, I try to be as um, targeted and poetic as possible. Um, and I mean that poetic in terms of the real estate that it supplies. I think Walter Hill has been a great inspiration for me in how he can do you know, an entire script almost in haiku. Hmm. And I know the fewer words, the better. In, in particular instances, there are times when more text on the page helps you from a graphic standpoint because you can subliminally... Blah, communicate to your reader what's going on. This is a script that I wrote uh, called Bird Box that was an adaptation of Josh Mallerman's novel. And there are there's kind of two worlds or two timelines that you go back and forth in that one. And one uh, is just a woman and, and two young children uh, alone and with nobody else in the world around them, really, um, except for something that, might not, that you don't want to know about. <laughs> and... Uh, every time I got to those passages in the in the novel, I was super tense and scared. And, and he, Josh, had this great way of communicating how silent the whole place was, unnervingly silent. And I I discovered on the page I had to make that as clipped hmm. as possible and just drown you in white space, so that you were really craving more words, and it just felt way too freaking quiet. And then immediately. When you went back into the place that was like populated with a lot of people, I went, you know, with the text and just like slammed a bunch of stuff. So you felt already crowded and around other mm-hmm. voices and people. Um, and I'm, so I'm, I'm learning more about the the graphic design element of screenwriting. Mm-hmm. And it's something that's not talked about a whole lot, but it's certainly part of conveying, yeah, the the movie you have in your head, right? Yeah. Um, so what are you, what other games are you playing with that? What else are you discovering about that? Um, I'm discovering how, you know, I, I had seen, I had seen work that I'd done in previous scripts get clipped and pulled out and lifted and, um, quite often it was because I didn't do a good enough job of nesting the importance of that scene in the rest of the script. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that to better protect the way a scene works in a script, I had to focus on my transitions more than anything because a director can really fall in love with a way that one scene connects to another and therefore will defend those, both of those scenes honestly to the, to the yeah. studio because they know how it, the glue that puts it together. And, I didn't know exactly how to approach that until I started reading Tony Gilroy's scripts, the early stuff, like the reader drafts before he goes into production, because the reader drafts don't use slug lines at all. Hmm. He just goes from one image in one scene to a first image in the next scene, and he finds a way to chain link those so that it's seamless and you don't realize that there's no slug line until you're on page 40 and you're like, was this master done? Like, how (laughs) he got that by me? And so... Uh, that has made me 
focus a bit more on um, connecting all my scenes together in a chain. That's really neat. Is there somewhere people can find? I mean, you've you've talked now about a couple of screenwriters. Is, yeah. Is there some resource that people can find these scripts? I'd scoured the internet for them, and they're in different places. Okay. So I don't have any around. one particular. Yeah, yeah. You can poke around. They're right. there. Right. It's good to know. I mean, part of doing this is reading the stuff that's out there. Yeah. And finding the stuff that's good, and you know, exactly creating your take on it. Um, let's talk about some of the the work you did. Before arrival, some of these hard hat jobs. I'm curious about. Yeah, all right. Uh, you know, we've talked for ten years now about how the movie business is changing. Yeah, and uh, Arrival is such an unusual movie in for all the reasons that you said uh, yeah. that people didn't want to make it early on. Uh, it, it's not a pre-existing uh, sort of universe uh, of IP. Um, it's a female lead. Uh, and you have worked on some of these uh, remakes and redos and, you know, things mm-hmm. in other people's universes. How did you find your way into those uh, to tell the story? Not not getting the work itself. We can talk about that, which I am curious about. But right. how did you find the emotional way into those? Or can you just do the work without that? I can't. I know some others can, you know. It's very much a... A job, you know, a career to to some, and uh, the problem is that I get horrible writer's block when I when I don't have that emotional component. So um, it's kind of self defeating. I uh, but we, and let me just interrupt. I, I just pulled this up so we can be specific about some. I'm talking about uh, your credit on Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, the remake, Final Destination movie, The Thing. Um, even uh, probably even lights out, which seemed like a work for hire sort of gig. Uh, All of which are good movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know if I would I would go as far as saying that, but um, I'm very polite on this podcast. That's very nice of you. Thank you. <laughs> no, look, they're all watchable movies. It's hard to make a movie. It's hard to make a movie. It is a miracle that movies get made. <laughs> so yes, you kind of have to. I watched the thing again the other the remake uh, the, again the other night. Yeah, to watch it twice. Come on, it's not that bad. It's enjoyable. You're not happy with it. Um, it's hard to be happy with something that that where you were aiming for so much farther, and, and you really got there for the most part, and then um, then you found you know it's fascinating that arrival is really about communication and about building vocabulary, um, and you and you can find yourself in a really bad position if there's someone in a, in a position of power who has a very limited vocabulary of the genre of film you're making. Mm-hmm. And your and everybody else that's on it has a very in depth version, mm-hmm. um, because then you end up at this weird roadblock where they're saying, "No, it's just a bunch of jump scares with the music sting, and you're good." Yeah, and we're like, "No, we did. Oh, we did so much work on this. What are you doing? Oh, and then and then, then that's it. You yeah. know? Well, that I mean, that's sort of the thing, right? For and and I I for these work for hire jobs, these hard hat jobs is sure. How ambitious can you be in your storytelling, and how much are you just serving this master? I was super ambitious, really? and to to a fault. You know, I I went, I swung for the fences a lot of the times. Can you talk about that a little bit? Can you get specific on a couple of these? Um, like what were you trying to do in in the thing, or or one of the, the other ones? The thing was meant to be um, the first half of a double feature. So it had to really interlock very well with Carpenter's film. Mm-hmm. 
and, and Bill Lancaster, the the writer who also wrote Bad News Bears, by the way. So he's a great yes. writer. <laughs> and uh, see, like I, I, you know, I'm not monogamous to genre, and, and neither was he. And like I don't know, it's a, it's a tough thing now in today's business. But but on that, you know, it was the first script that I had to write um, by autopsy. Really, hmm. uh, I came on board already uh, with uh, the director Matthias and. He and I watched the film again. We'd seen Carpenter's movie lots of times, and we went like maybe 30 more times together and went down with a clipboard and just like chronicled every little piece of information that we could, like forensic data about the Norwegian camp. Oh my God. Um, and made sure that we could justify all of that. Um, we put so many different loving touches into the script um, that we were proud of. Um, I mean, there's there's stuff that happened on the on the production side that are different battles. But okay, an, an example, and I've given this example before. Mm-hmm. I talked about this uh, when somebody did a, a big online viewing of the movie a few weeks ago. So you may have heard the story. My apologies. Um, one of the Norwegian characters was the cook Lars. Lars could not speak English, um, and Mary Winstead's character then didn't know how to like talk to, back and forth with him, uh, and yet they both kind of found a way to like just point with the flamethrower and like that's bad kill that you know that kind of thing um but the the fun character trait for lars was that he was a butterfingers like he would just he would drop stuff you'd think okay this guy's gonna get killed very quickly because there's no way someone this clumsy can survive (laughs) and yet he did he was one of the two guys on the norwegian side that survived all the way to the end Mm -hmm. and we put him in the helicopter and left it at that and then you 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 cue up a carpenter's film and you realize lars is the guy who drops the grenade so super fun. We do that. We did that kind of work there. Mm-hmm. And we also did a lot of work to try and expand the mythology. Um, there was a sequence early on of the crew that entered the spaceship uh, as a team for the first time and discovered that it was more of a kind of a zookeeper's ship. And one exhibit obviously had broken free, hmm. and uh, they That's found uh, wrecked uh, rooms in, like of an alien you know, a uh, crew section that had been totally destroyed. That was a great, like, sci-fi foreshadowing for what was going to happen to them. Hmm. And, you know, and someone said, uh, and there, when looking at it, they were like, this looks like, a, you know, a real, a real mess. And Mary Winstead, like, no, it's more like a crime scene. Like, this is definitely, this is not a good sign. Um, but, uh, you know, I think budget cuts meant we couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. And then poor Matthias, like, the battles he had to fight during pre-production and production where sometimes everything got shut down is someone had the wise idea, quote unquote, uh, to like make it a 3d movie. And, and everyone had to say, no, why are we, why are we wasting so much time and energy on, on, on battles that we shouldn't have to fight at this point? Well, so much of it seems to get away from the story, right? The original reason that people respond to this thing yeah. and want to see more of this thing. Yeah. Um, and, and at that point, I would imagine it's as a screenwriter, it's all out of your hands anyway. Yeah. Um, the was the puzzle aspect of that movie. Was that your way in? Was that the fun for you on that? It was. I mean, it, the idea of like writing a love letter to the mm-hmm. to the eighty two film was was very enticing, mm-hmm. um, and figuring out a way to tell uh, the story that could make everybody still the smartest people in the room, but not step on the, the feet of the, of the other film. Mm-hmm. 
And the other major question that I had that I wanted to work with is what can we show the thing learning in our film that it uses in the next one, having already acquired that info. Mm-hmm. Little little bits and pieces like that that I found. Um, and then beyond the intellectual side of things, I began to have a real like emotional connection to Kate, to uh, Mary Winstead's character here, as um, you know, one of the few women in the entire film uh, who who's already feeling like an outsider, uh, a little paranoid. Uh, even more so when some of the characters around here start speaking in, in a language she, she can't follow mm-hmm. them. Uh, and the one friend that she has who starts translating for her, Juliet, uh, winds up being one of the first people to betray her. Mm-hmm. So um, I, you know, I felt for her in a way that I felt for uh, my wife when she joined a new TV writer's room on some show and you know <laughs> had to navigate some of that. Absolutely. That is a great comparison. Yeah. Any of them could be an alien. Any, absolutely. You don't know what's going to like completely kill you in the, in the exactly. women's room. Um, is that generally how you will work on uh, a script? Do you find the things to be excited about? Whether it's and is it generally character? Is it a sequence? Like, where, what's your jumping off point usually? Um, I have several jumping off points. I'm really open to whatever gets me excited about the project. Um, I know it can't last, so I'm desperate to find the next thing to jump to. Uh-huh. Uh, and if I don't, then I'm really stalled out. I'm in trouble because then all I, I'm, I'm a writer that does one good scene. <laughs> and, and there's like 105 more pages to yeah. write, and I'm in trouble. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, I find the thing that kind of springboards me into it. And while I was excited about the puzzle... The thing that that really brought me into the draft on on that prequel was the concept that this creature um, couldn't replicate uh, inorganic material, and that turned into great reveal for us that we got to play with mm-hmm. and gave us a lot more mileage out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, is there a film before Arrival where you feel like? Not just it all came together, but it represents you as a writer? Well, I'd say since I had to make so many of the decisions, and it was the first time I put on the director's hat, probably the Paul Walker movie, Ours. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, which we have not even talked about. Let's talk about that. Uh-huh. Uh, why is that the one that you directed? It was the one that allowed me to demonstrate I could do more than just horror. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was all I was getting at the time. And... Of course, I needed to pay the bills, but um, I was just exhausted from wearing the hard hat on horror movies. Mm-hmm. And you get sent a lot of really broken things in the genre that, you know, that they would please save our patient who's dying on the table now. And um, Is there, let me interrupt for a sec, but is there any, is there any fun in that, in the fixing? To some, yes. I rarely find the fun there Hmm. um if i connect with it on some deep level then i feel i can be good for it but by and large i'm not the the guy that can help you with that (laughs) sure i'm just not i don't get i don't get those calls that anymore (laughs) (laughs) do they have to bring it to another fixer after you (laughs) um i probably you know what (laughs) that's the way these things i don't yeah exactly i'm probably writer number 27 of 35 or whatever exactly uh and let me back up for just a second and we'll, we'll go back to ours um 
how did you become the horror guy? What was the what was was there a magic script for you that went around? Yeah, sort of. Yeah, I had written um, uh, thirteen spec screenplays in a whole variety of genre, a wow. whole lot of sci-fi. Like five of them were, I think, for mm-hmm. sci-fi. Why sci-fi? Why is that your interest? Um, I you know I I grew up with that. My mom made this interesting choice to like read Heinlein and Bradbury to me when I was a boy, you know, <laughs> instead of I don't know, like Dr. Seuss or whatever. <laughs> and so I had a really deep imagination at times when I probably shouldn't have, you know, when it, you can scare yourself half to death sometimes. But um, man, I wanted to be the kid in half space who will travel, and uh, and that stuck with me. So um, I'm always excited about science fiction, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, authors that I haven't heard of before and stories that like, you know, approach it in a new, in a new way. And I've done a lot of those, but I'm, I know how important it is to, to try new genres in the same way as it's important to try new mediums because you sharpen the saw, you know, you start to work new muscles and you learn stuff from one genre that can carry you to the next. Um, so I'd done that for quite a while and was out here in LA really hemorrhaging money, trying to get uh, a job. And the script that landed was my one horror script. And, uh, you know, it got me uh, a bunch of meetings. You know, it got me, it nearly got made. Hmm. And and that broke me into the business, and I got nothing but horror scripts from then on. You know, that was the, that was the one thing that I could get. And that went for a few years of me trying to be good about embracing that and grateful to have an agent and, and mm-hmm. all of that. What do you think it was about that spec that people responded to? Uh, I think it was just familiar enough that all the new stuff in it, in it was a, a very Lovecraftian tale. Mm-hmm. And before we actually had a buyer, I, you know, I had no agent that would that would see me you know i would say this is what it is and they would say is that a couch i don't know and i was in trouble uh but then uh heyday films uh took it to warner brothers and you know they were at a time in the middle of the harry potter films and warner's was just like how much you want i'll just hear blank check you know whatever you want sir you know that's crazy and and when you have that kind of advocate in a, in a position of power it it makes it it makes it uh, a lot easier. Sure. What were you doing at the time while you were writing these specs on the side? Because they had to be on the side. You weren't making a living off of it, right? I was not, no. Yeah. I was losing money, but I was trying my best to stay afloat uh, doing uh, playtesting work for a video game company in Westwood. That's great. That sounds so sexy, and it <laughs> is really the boring, well, the most just soul-sucking job. Mm-hmm. Um. So so this script got some traction, and you became right. the horror guy for a few years. I became years. the horror guy for a few years. Um, and as you say, you know, when you are starting out like that, you, you don't get to say no. No, right? no, absolutely you not. You have to say yes to, to everything. That. Yes. There was, I had the year of saying yes uh-huh. and, and tried to make everything work mm-hmm. and thought that this is how the business was. Hmm. Like, I had no experience in that and, and just ran with it as best I could. And I, that's how I wound up in the room when they were telling me about Elm Street. And uh, and from there, I got uh, into the other rooms on Final Destination, which was mm-hmm. the same studio. Some really good guys over there. Mm-hmm. And then uh, and then I got to a point where you see enough bad horror films, especially I got uh, 
I guess this was either, this was like early 2010, I think, where I, I got sent three different horror scripts that were all kind of home invasion movies that had rape sequences. Um, and I had to tell my agent, never send me a rape movie. Just don't do this. This is really ugly. I'm not ever going to write on these things. And I don't, I don't want to read them anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, I've got to change my lane. I've yeah. got to get out of this. Drawing that line, having that realization must have been yeah. an enormous epiphany. It was big. And it and was it also so on to me. It was on to me to do that, though, because mm-hmm. nobody else was going to like acknowledge that I could do something else. And so yeah. I, wrote the, I wrote the drama this, this on spec again. Mm-hmm. And then I went to my reps and I'm like, I need, I think I need to direct this one. I think that's going to help. Interesting. Get me out. On, on. Uh, let, uh, let's talk about the story first. Uh, can you, I have not seen ours. That's um, all right. I hear it is great. It got great reviews when it came out. Can you tell me just, from the four people who did see it? <laughs> but I, remember, I mean, it was well reviewed. I remember reading about it. Um, can you just tell us briefly what it is about and why this story? It was mitosis of several different pieces of information, which is how I tend to like build a movie in my head. I can't just latch onto one core idea because that gets me like five pages. And I'm, oh, that's it. Oh, I sort of just, <laughs> oh, that's it. So uh, for this, it was a case of, you know, I'd lived in Houston for a long time and I had friends who um, were affected by Katrina when it hit uh, Louisiana. I mean, New Orleans was sort of like the city that everybody went to for the bachelor party. And, uh, and so we had stories of some of the refugees that had to, you know, had to camp out in the Astrodome for a while. And a friend of mine ran this portable shower business, usually for productions that would go out in the swamp and she would pull and you know, get Louisiana off of you. Um, she rolled into New Orleans after the, uh, the hurricane swept through just to be as a volunteer for helping anybody who came across and needed a shower. Uh, and so she collected a bunch of stories and shared them with me on uh, the time that I got to go back to Houston. Uh, and a number of those stuck with me, including how the doctors and the nurses at Charity Hospital had to manually crank ICU equipment hmm. because there was no power. And there was a horrible set of decisions of of triage, really, of like who needs your time most. Yeah. Um, and that didn't, I was like really fascinated by that, but that didn't really turn into a film for me until... Um, Another friend of mine was uh, expecting to be a father and was having a number of nightmares about it and, and had a lot of stress just involved in the idea of fatherhood. And there were some complications with the pregnancy at that time. There were some, there were some preeclampsia scares. Hmm. And there's a thing called HELP syndrome where, uh, you know, the parts of the body don't work like the way they should and you can bleed yourself out. And he was really terrified about all of that. And that clicked in my head with the stories of the, the, the manual crank. And I said, what if I did basically a story about, about parenthood? And I placed it in Katrina based on a bunch of real stories that happened and collecting more stories after that, including there's a dog in the movie, which... Never make a first movie with a dog and water and an infant because yeah. that's. I was ridiculously stupid. I was, there's a lot of like never do that again. Right. Kind of it thing. wasn't even ambitious. It was no. Uh, it naivety. was yeah. <laughs> what my producer says: you don't know what you don't know, Eric, and that's going to kill us all. <laughs> uh, but you know, we got there, and the story was just really about the endurance it takes to love someone who constantly needs you, and and that was 
the condition of the, Paul Walker's character, mm. Nolan, who found himself in an abandoned hospital um, and next to this incubator to keep his infant alive uh, by manually cranking mm-hmm. something. And uh, it seems repetitive, but uh, I found a number of ways around that. Uh, I'm sure. I, I hope. <laughs> I'm, I'm certain. I'm curious about how this came together, mm-hmm. uh, just the, the actual process of writing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it feels like the kind of story that you discover as you go. Yeah. Uh, was that the case? Did you have an outline? How did you how did you find the story? You have all these pieces. How do you start to synthesize them? I started with a short story. I wanted to see hmm. if, if the bones of it could work in prose, and that story got actually uh, published on um, Derek Hass for the longest mm-hmm. while had uh, popcorn fiction, uh, and so I did not realize. That yeah, that, that was there. That's neat. Yeah, yeah. So this is one of the first things that got onto popcorn fiction, and I felt then okay, it has. It has some energy. It has some room to grow there. And I began to do an immense amount of research on Katrina and filled my head with a bunch of stories, both good and bad. Uh, and one of them was, the, like I mentioned about the dog, which was this, uh, this uh, rescue dog that uh, was in a kennel and the whole kennel's flooded. Uh, but the, the dog broke out and was trying to swim its way back to uh, civilization and found an elderly couple on the roof, and the dog then stayed with them for a while until it heard a Coast Guard boat somewhere and jumped back in, in the water, swam over, got the Coast Guard, and led them back to the couple. And I was like, this is a hero dog. I gotta, <laughs> yeah. This dog's got to be in my movie somehow. And uh, and it turned out to be, you know, we had a fun we had a fun beat with that. So, oh, yeah. my gosh. Um, do you generally, I mean, it sounds like for Arrival, you did have sort of, uh, you had the story and then you had an outline that became the pitch and stuff, but do you tend to do a thorough outline or is it a discovery process? I have to do a thorough outline um, if I'm serious about writing it, hmm. because when I get very exploratory without doing that work, I wind up writing the scenes that I'm excited about and then I lose interest. Yeah. And and so I got to get the like the pragmatist side of me has to know the architecture and that's where I began looking into other ways that people write and I found the, the kind of the very cliche left brain right brain where you can have your wall your cork wall or wherever it is and you you bifurcate it and one side is all very core questions architecture what's the superstructure of this script hmm. what are the main choices that the characters make that drive it. You know, so that you don't create an and-then story. You never mm-hmm. want the and-then this happened, you know. You want to make sure that, every, that your characters are really pushing it forward. And the other half is the the the, the most fun of the, everything, because it's the flotsam and jetsam, little bits and pieces. It's the, like the lines of dialogue that you've written on a note mm-hmm. card and pen there, or it's like a, a jacket in a magazine ad. You're like, oh, my guy wears this, <laughs> you know. And it's sure. some, like, landscape photos and, like, whatever else that you find. Um, and eventually you, you kind of get a critical mass on that wall of stuff where both sides have some enough critical data that you can just bring that over and turn it into like a Word document or some other whatever, mm-hmm. you know, Scrivener, and you, and you make that uh, your outline. Mm-hmm. Uh, even with stuff scanned in, sometimes I have images mm-hmm. that stayed with me for inspiration for a long time. And that's neat. In the outline In the stage, outline itself, yeah. That's pretty neat. Uh, does that look like a short story to you? Uh, it, when I'm not, sometimes I write just for like an Eric Ease where I do a lot of shorthand, uh, and it's, it's very much not for anybody else to see. Cause mm-hmm. I'll, I'll be like, oh, this is going to be so cool if we can do this. Uh, 
and and I would never <laughs> have anybody else like read the little right. notes to myself of what I should be getting excited about. Uh, but there are other times when I I do approach it from a, a prose standpoint and, and make it a, a sort of this building short story. And some of the words in there that I find, some of the descriptors then carry into the script. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a great sort of halfway step to that first draft. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then what does your day look like when you're working on a movie? Well, I came from the white collar world. You know, I was a cubicle monkey at a soulless corporation in, in uh, Houston, Texas, for a number of years, and uh, I then I earned the discipline of the sort of the nine to six job, and I try my best to stick to that. Mm-hmm. And if I have meetings or you know other events that take place during the day, you know, mentally I try and make that up sometimes on the weekend mm-hmm. or later at that night. But I, I, try, I just try to put the, the hours every day because it's a case of like if I if I go too long, my my little demons show up and they say we're going to take you back to Houston and put you back there in the cubicle and that's your job if you can't do this job. Hmm. Sure, you're putting that pressure on yourself, uh, but you're getting the pages done. What what kind of output do you get done in a day? And do you revise as you go? I do revise as I go. I try my best not to. But the inner judge loves to show up, and sometimes you have to fix something early on in order to feel better about going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, but by and large, I just try and lay down as many pages as possible a day. I focus on hours rather than the number of pages. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I wish it were the other way around, you know, because like by 11 sure. in the morning, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to take the rest of the day off. But, uh, but no, uh, you know, I, I stay there. Sometimes it's staring at the screen for hours on end, mm. and that's where I ended up. This is something. This is a weird thing to. I don't want to pimp it per se, but I wound up trying to devise for myself a whole bunch of little exercises to do whenever I found myself in a position of like either writer's block for any number of reasons, or when I discovered that I've overwritten a scene, mm-hmm. or where I didn't understand a character's motivation. And so I started collecting all of these, and on Twitter I began sharing them, and somebody was like, can you put all these in one document? And I said, ah, sure, I guess. And and so now there's like a little ebook on on Amazon. Uh, there's 150 write, uh, screenwriting challenges. And oh, that's, that's great. Uh, that's all my own stuff that I that you can have as well if you want. But this yeah. is what I use for myself. Well, and it sounds like it works for you. And people, it works like, for me. Absolutely, people should try it at least to get the the energy going. It's not a theory book. It's mm-hmm. just like every page is like, how about you try this now? <laughs> well, it seems like the kind of thing, a, a practical tool to get fingers on keyboard yeah. and get you thinking about whether it's character story or scene, whatever it is. Yeah, um, That's great. Well, people should check that out. Thank you. Uh, they can look look you up sure. on Amazon. Sure, right. look me up. <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> um, let's jump back to ours and uh, what you got out of this. I'm curious to hear about how directing uh, is like writing and how it's not. Directing uh, having written the the piece that you're directing is a real natural evolution in many respects because you know the origins of all these thoughts and emotions. You know what's happening on the page. Mm-hmm. And directing for a good stretch of the job is answering 10,000 questions a day. It is just you're constantly bombarded. Don't you dare go to Starbucks at the end of the day because you're just like, I want coffee. Just God, please. No more questions. You know, it's right. like it's that kind of uh, intensity. And having written the piece, you know a lot of them. Like you can actually talk about the subtext of a scene mm-hmm. or 
a, a choice in a wardrobe or a specific design element where it needs to have this but not that. And, uh, and then just um, sharing that with everybody else on the team makes them all feel more connected with it. And answering why you want something is always better than just giving a straight answer of, mm-hmm. you know, option number five. So that helps a lot. But you're also aware then of the greater process of it and how the script is really just the the jumping off point and you need to be able to sort of like bend like a reed in the wind and fix things or change things. You find that you find a location that isn't quite what you wanted it to be because what you wanted it to be doesn't really work in real in real hmm. life. Um or it's all you can get on a short notice, or whatever the case is. And and then you find other things that are much better. Sometimes you, you can have a whole scene of dialogue between two people, and then your actor shows up, and he gives you this face, and you're like, oh, okay, never mind. Never mind. <laughs> Get rid of all that. Get rid of all that. <laughs> uh, that's really, that's cool. Is there more directing in your future? You know, I'm picky about that, because it takes away at least a year of my life. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I need so I, I, there's a higher bar for me to hit as a director than as a writer, hmm. uh, simply because I can uh, you know I can work on something for six months and then right. be done with it. Uh, but I can say that I am absolutely going to do something again. Okay. I just don't know what. But that's great. And and look, uh, Arrival took so long. <laughs> You look so sad, but also I'm so just, relieved. Well, there's an interesting thing about, like, yeah, it's, it's relief. You know, a movie that comes out like this, and I'm so proud of it. I really, really am. That's right. But around the five-year mark is where you stop really, like, <laughs> celebrating, and you're just like, oh, finally. You <laughs> right. know? You're just, you're like, oh, God, yeah. I made it. Well, and and you knew. I mean, yes. you yes. were behind this the whole time. You knew this was a movie. You knew this could be something good. Which leads me to ask, so that took so long, and you did it yeah what's next (laughs) do you have another one of those i i i made it i made i made a vow to myself uh in 2012 to write one spec a year at least regardless of what was going on in my career that's great And i've stuck to that wow uh and i'm finishing up a spec for 2016 now and i'll write a spec uh maybe as early as january or february next year like i'm i'm doing this because um because if a rival can happen from that, then I should keep swinging for the offenses like that. That's that's really great. And I think, especially for screenwriters who are not working screenwriters, it's even more doable. Yeah. You know, you can write yeah. a spec a year. You can write two specs a year. You really can. You have the time. And absolutely. Do do that. Be, you know, get out there in the, in the marketplace like that, because that's going to be helpful. Yeah. Well, like you said, I mean, you wrote 13 of these yeah. starting out, and one of them stuck. And, yeah, and it's the one that many of them were horrible, things. but you know, sure. but they were. But that's really, also learning. The that's craft, also learning right? the craft. Yeah, um, we'll just wrap up by asking. So, Arrival uh, is out as of this, and people should see it. And it'll probably be out for months and months, and get big awards push and stuff. I'd be surprised if it doesn't. Yeah, come on. Um, have you seen movies lately that you have loved? What can you recommend to us? Um, what is inspiring to you in cinema these days? Uh, well, I saw. I you know here's a friend connection that I have. I'm good friends with John Spates, and so I got to see an early uh, screening of Passengers, and I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, I've, I've been a fan of his uh, writing and that script in particular for years and years, and so um, this year for both of us is like 
uh, you know, our, our kids graduating college and we, you know, we're handing each other cigars such a, to a certain <laughs> extent. Um, so that one, I, I, people should look forward to. I don't know when this airs, but mm-hmm. it may be around the corner for him at that point. Yeah, I think so. Um, and the, the other film that I saw again, but I saw it back in March, uh, but I saw it uh, again recently to, because I'm indoctrinating a bunch of friends with it, is uh, The Invitation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm a huge Karen Kasama fan. She's uh, so good. She's ridiculously good. <laughs> like, holy moly. And paired with uh, Matt and Phil, it's just, I can't wait to see what the next thing is. Yeah. Uh, and that's a good one that people can watch that on Netflix. Yeah, it definitely. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for being here. Thank I you. I appreciate you coming by to talk. Well, this is delightful. <laughs> Congrats on the movie. <laughs> Thanks. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 